Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us is Joseph Wren, who has somehow decided to keep recording this show after the ickiness of the last episode. Joe, are you ready for some more Discuss? I have my copy of Power Wash Simulator booted up, and I am ready to center myself and just waste hours of the day. You know, if you want to talk about uh, Power Wash Simulator, which is a game that I, I love for some reason. I don't know why that mo- that game is so satisfying. I went from playing that to playing Scorn. That was a really bad combo. <laughs> now you know how I feel after last week's episode. Okay, well, so, uh, good. I mean, that leads us perfectly into the, the point I want to make. In our previous episode, we discussed the intersection of true crime and horror media. If you haven't listened to that episode, I guess that means you're a new subscriber. So, hello. Thank you for tuning in or downloading. But you are going to need to go back one episode. Otherwise, you might get lost. But we'll be here when you're done. Okay, you're back. Awesome. If you did your homework and listened to the last episode, or actually went and watched Angst, you know that the depiction of that sort of frenzied violence is genuinely awful. But more importantly, seeing the disgusting reality of pathological violence does a real number on the mythos that has sprung up around serial killers. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the 2019 Fatih Aiken film, The Golden Glove. For the record, I didn't intend to watch two back-to-back German language films. And again, this movie deals with some sexual violence in a fairly graphic way. In episode one of our podcast, I advised you to tread lightly with this film, and I have to repeat that sentiment here. If you are sensitive to that sort of subject, skip this movie. I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing rape or sexual violence on this show, but I also understand if you don't want to follow along with this episode too. Do we need to come up with a system or a rating scale or a checklist that we put in the show notes of these are the topics that are going to be discussed on this week's episode? I, you know, I, I think that might actually be a pretty good idea. I think if we wanted to have a, a, a checklist in the, in the show, some ideas I'm kicking around for later episodes, I'm going to talk about that, that direct concept. But uh, as for just telling people what to expect going in, you know, I hate to say it, man, but it's probably not a bad idea. With that out of the way, we can sort of start to talk about this movie, The Golden Glove. It's a biographical study of Fritz Honka, a German serial killer who was active in Hamburg from 1970 to 1975. It's worth noting here that any detail I have about Honka, few as there are, might be somewhat incorrect. And rather like the source material for Angst, there's not a lot of info about Honka in English. I am having to go on what little info I could glean from online research, as well as the Golden Glove film itself, which is based on a fictionalized novel by a German author named Heinz Strunk. I have not been able to find a full English translation of the novel, and my German is honestly too limited to try and read it without having a professional translator. As someone with a somewhat traditional journalism background, not having close to primary sources is actually kind of frustrating. but. Thankfully, this isn't really traditional journalism, right? With that in mind, I'm going to try to knock out the plot as quickly as I can. The Golden Glove follows Fritz Honka through the majority of his criminal life. We watch him as he viciously assaults and brutally murders women from a Hamburg bar named 
the Golden Glove, a place that makes your worst neighborhood tavern seem heavenly. Uh, Joe, did you get a chance to watch the Golden Glove? It's on my list, but part of my week is not just watching the film, but it's having the conversation with you and editing the conversation for release. So this one I have not gotten to yet. I'm looking forward to it because anytime you have a film that the title is a place in the film, I read that as this is about things that happen in this place. So that's a plot I'm used to. And judging by the title of this episode, The Brutal Truth, I'm taking it literally. This one's going to be ugly, isn't it? Okay, so to give you an idea about the way this bar is depicted in this movie, um, do you remember the old Creepy Crawl location? Absolutely. Okay, so for non-St. Louis listeners, the Creepy Crawl was a punk and metal venue, uh, uh, roughly downtown St. Louis, uh, in kind of an old historical neighborhood. Uh, the The way I would describe the Creepy Crawl was underlit and sticky. The Golden Glove is the creepy crawl, better lit, three times as sticky, with ten times the cigarette smoke. And to give everyone a better visual, this isn't the bar that you go to that's been around for a few years. This is the bar you buy when you want to start your bar business. It's a lot smaller than it should be for the amount of people that are crammed in there to see the show. Yeah, so the bar, as they depict it in this movie, it's it's a really great set. So the long and short, um, eventually Fritz Honka is caught and that and that's the end of the film. We do get to see in some comedic tones an attempt at understanding the interior life of Fritz Honka, shallow and depraved though it is, uh, rather predictably. The Golden Glove is a rough watch, comedically bad bar aside. This is another case of an important movie with definite cinematic value that is not a traditionally enjoyable experience. And needless to say, this movie did not go over well with critics either. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 54% positive rating, hardly a glowing review. More mainstream critics have had some pretty nasty things to say about this movie. Um, In the spirit of one of our first episodes, I'd like to share some comments made. Uh, Joe, could we get some mood music to set the scene? Oh, God, not again. This is going to be a recurring theme, right? Every time you have fucked up shit to say, the harpsichord comes out? Yes. I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, For instance, there is Richard Whitaker at the Austin Chronicle. This long slog through the gutter from its first brutal murder to Honka's grisly yet comedic arrest is a tough stroll, and it's hard to recommend. Brian Tellerco at RogerEbert.com says, Once you realize that Aiken is going to hold nothing back, the Golden Glove becomes an artless, flat affair, and Aiken and the film's fans are kidding themselves if they think the lack of sensationalism isn't a style choice in and of itself. And finally, here is Carlos Aguilar from the Los Angeles Times. Joe, go ahead and take this one for me, would you? Putrid imagery, drenched in blood and perspiration, paint a statement of moral corrosion in a society still haunted by post-war ghosts. It's a grand symphony of depravity, featuring murder-induced vomit and the sounds of flesh being ripped apart. And the lament configuration. 
somehow finds its way into another film. That is purely speculation by Joseph Friend <laughs> that does not come from one Carlos Aguilar. So this is not what you would call positive press. And I'm not really surprised by that. Uh, when I first watched this movie back in, I'm guessing, 2019 or 2020, I found it in the terror transgressive category on Shudder. That essentially serves as a warning that this movie may not make you feel good. Movies like Anthropophagus, The Sadness, and Cannibal Holocaust fill that roster, so you should have an idea of what you are getting into there. This movie, needless to say, is not for everyone. I'm pretty hard to make uncomfortable at a horror flick, as you know, but this one pushes the envelope for me. You might have already guessed that this movie has received more positive insight from some horror critics. Uh, Megan Navarro over at BloodyDisgusting.com describes the film perfectly. Quote, It feels inaccurate to say you'll enjoy The Golden Glove. The subject matter is of the heaviest variety, and its central character not one you're supposed to like. But it is a story with immense artistic merit and a new angle of the subgenre with something important to say. Now, I'm not personally surprised that Megan Navarro would be more thoughtful in her commentary. As a whole, uh, she's a great commentator. Moreover, I think that horror fans and critics get what this movie is doing. As I've said before, The Fright Lab is about using horror to talk about subjects that are unpleasant or too dark for other methods in media. As such, here's my basic thesis on The Golden Glove and, to an extent, angst. More conventional media cannot talk about any subject without glamorizing or glorifying it on some level. Horror is a framework to discuss ugly or dark subjects in a truthful and meaningful way. Admittedly, that sounds like pretentious nonsense, so I want to spend some time breaking down this idea. I'm not convinced that the world needs to know the story of someone like Fritz Honka. His murders are noteworthy in a sense, but not for the fact that they are murders themselves. There's a pervasive sense, in part created by true crime media and as well as horror, that the world is full of genuine monsters. And I'm not here to debate the moral position about mankind's inherent goodness or otherwise. But like I said earlier, Fritz Honka isn't the worst criminal of a century, or for that matter, in a decade, maybe even in any given year of his active period. Honka was a monster, to be sure, and I don't think anyone is wrong for saying he doesn't deserve sympathy. But that Honka isn't a unique monster should be a highly noteworthy consideration. Maybe Honka was born bad, I don't know. I'm a movie critic with an indie podcast, not a psychologist. But even if he was somehow irredeemable, that says nothing of the world that helped create him. Honka was the product of a long, terrible, period in German history. The two world wars, the subsequent Cold War, that divided the country, along with you know, severe economic instability, and so on. They're all part of his family's story, too. Plenty of German people ended up more or less normal after similar experiences. But I don't think it's wrong to say that trying to work on those issues of economic instability and the like might stop future Fritz Honkas from being uh, created. But let's assume that some monsters are always going to exist, no matter how hard we as a species try to prevent it. We have to remember that Honka seems to have operated with relative impunity for about five years. 
He brutally murdered women and stored their corpses in his home with no real attempt to get rid of the bodies. And as the movie depicts, we're not talking about some individual house. We're talking about an attic apartment. Someone had to have noticed the smell beforehand, right? There has to have been someone noticing people going missing or people going into his apartment and never coming out, right? Well, maybe not. Fans of true crime are probably well aware of the term, quote-unquote, the less dead. For the uninitiated, this term describes the subcategory of crime victims that police investigate with less interest if they investigate it at all. Just as well, our communities essentially don't notice or pretend to not notice these victims when they go missing. Honka's victims were often elderly or late middle-aged, alcoholic women, uh, some were allegedly sex workers. He wasn't a hunter going after some great strong prey, or really even a challenge at all. Honka, like so many other serial killers, was essentially trying to pick people off that could not muster a fight against him, literally or in the sense of the way social safety systems prevent guys like him from getting their jobs done. We as a society let so many people just slide through the cracks. If we were doing better to try to protect those people with less of a social safety net behind them, we might deprive the character of Honka of his victim type. And that says nothing of what would happen if we demanded that the quote-unquote less dead were actually treated with some human dignity. Whew, man, that's a rough section to have to think about. You are reminding me of the stories behind H.H. Holmes. And anytime you talk about someone hiding bodies in their house, or in this case, in their apartment, I always come back to that story. This was someone who not only captured people, but tortured people and killed people, but bought a building and had it modified into a death trap. You know, the difference there, though, like, I just got done saying that we shouldn't glorify serial killers, but you've got to give a guy like H. Holmes a perverse kind of credit in a sense, in that he had an image in mind that was a murder hotel and carried it out. Now, I'm mostly joking when I say you have to give the guy any credit, but the difference here is that Holmes, for all of his uh, moral awfulness, I guess, was not Fritz Honka. He was, by the standards of the time, a pretty normal-looking guy. He was well-spoken. He was a relatively intelligent character in his private life. Uh, Fritz Honka's not that. I think the difference there is that in the 1920s, maybe there was less of an understanding of uh, like serial killers. I, maybe there's less of an understanding of criminology that people didn't know what to look for. Moreover, at that time period, especially in America, humans were humans were. I'm talking like I'm a fucking alien. <laughs> Let's strike that from the record, shall we? Um, especially in the 1920s in America, people were much more transient. There was still a frontier of sorts, even if it was very, very vague or kind of the, the nation was mostly uh, settled and conquered, but it wasn't the way it is now. It was much easier to live a transient lifestyle and therefore go missing a lot easier. And I think that's the point you're making today. It's not so easy to get lost. It shouldn't even be possible for someone to go missing for an extensive period of time because someone has decided you're going to be my next victim. Yeah, I mean, 
there's a certain level of, of tension that exists there that I want people to be able to live their lives as they see fit and be able to, hey, I don't want to live in wherever I'm living and I want to move elsewhere and not have to explain that to anybody. I don't think there's anything like morally intrinsically wrong with that. But there's a difference between us letting people do as they see fit with their private lives so long as they're not hurting anybody and well, Fritz honking their way through a group of people in a small geographic area. I don't want to preach, and believe it or not, I don't want to be a bummer either. And that's one of the reasons I think that horrifying subjects need to be talked about in more horror media. Uh, Joe, you're familiar with uh, Eddie Campbell and Alan Moore's series From Hell, right? Absolutely. Alan Moore, one of my favorites. Okay, so in the comic series of Alan Moore, there's an epilogue to the whole thing called The Dance of the Gull Catchers. Um, For the audience, it's kind of an artist's statement about all of the source material that Moore went through creating it. And it allows some room to talk about Jack the Ripper's crimes inside their context. There's a point that's being made in Dance of the Gull Catchers that I really appreciate. We've spent over a century talking about the identity of Jack the Ripper, and we give almost no room to discuss the five women he murdered. And that's such an interesting thing, right? How many conspiracy theories have you heard about who was Jack the Ripper? Was he uh, a depraved butcher? Was he a member of the royal family? We we don't know. We kind of can't know in some regards, but we do know the, the identities of the quote-unquote five canonical victims. They were all the less dead and deserved to be remembered and discussed. Done thoughtfully, I think horror movies or even graphic novels might be a place where we can talk about that openly and frankly. Here, we can talk not only about their horrible deaths, but also get a glimpse of the reality of their lives. On the list of I'll believe it when I see it, the most recent example of we've identified Jack the Ripper came down to DNA tests of the victim's clothing. The match that they found seemed to be an immigrant because it didn't match the London genome of the time. Yeah. So they have made a strong case of Jack the Ripper was an immigrant who was a businessman who was visiting London repeatedly. So that's who they think it is now. But I like what you said. There's a lot of theories, and it's been so long, we're probably never going to know. Yeah. Really, we won't know. How many, I can't count how many uh, articles and documentaries and whatnot I've seen that the identity of Jack the Ripper revealed. It never, it's never definitive. It's never, um, I think, convincing. And I'm not a criminologist. I am not in any business to say what's convincing criminal evidence, I suppose. But there's that part of me that ultimately goes, so? (laughs) So? Like, does us solving the, the crime of Jack the Ripper in 2022, a century plus later, matter. I, I don't know. I, and again, I'm no moral authority. I'm only guessing here. But that's a... Sure, that's a that's a perfectly logical explanation. But, you know, it, it, what that reminds me of, uh, do you remember the Patty Jenkins film Monster? Uh, it stars Charlize Theron as the American serial killer Eileen Warnos. Almost unrecognizable in that role. Yeah, it, it's an interesting flick, and it's obviously really well done. We're not going to talk about that movie here, really, or criticize it in one direction or another beyond a single point. 
Monster shows Theron's uh, portrayal of Eileen Wuornos as essentially just a victim responding violently to the depravities of her would-be attackers. Now, given what we know about Eileen Wuornos' crimes and the frank inability for her to be a reliable narrator, some parts of that movie strike me as just a little hard to swallow. Now, that said, Theron, as you pointed out, does a great job in that movie to try to not look like herself. Uh, I don't think of being terribly controversial here to say that Charlize Theron is known for her looks, at least until she became uh, an, an award-winning actress. She was formerly a dancer and a model, and that shows. Kudos to her for being willing to try to intentionally sand down some of the sheen off of her appearance. But in the end, I kind of felt like Charlize Theron still will always kind of just look like Charlize Theron. And I can't see how they could make her look really bad. Like, you'd have to do some serious work, right? But I have to give credit to uh, director Fatih Aiken for The Golden Glove. He does not pull any punches in making a, a Jonas Dassler, who plays Honka in the movie, look like shit. Heavy prosthetics, poor cheap clothes, they do a big part of it. And Dassler, man, he really twists his posture, his breathing, he just twitches his way through the whole movie. He's coated in this like fine layer of sweat, oil, and grime. You would not want this guy cornering you at a bar, you know? He looks like he stinks. But physical appearance, as we all know, is no way to judge someone. We can, however, talk about his horrible violence on defenseless women. <laughs> and that we see him commit this first murder in a pair of like white briefs underwear and brown socks doesn't really help our opinion. He sets about dismembering his first victim in this in this absurd getup, and he has to keep drinking and put on music to get the job done. It, he just looks both terrible and miserable the entire time. And yet, the worst acts of violence in this movie take a backseat to just how pointless of a life this guy led. Most of us don't end up as movie stars or rock stars or whatever, but most of our lives have a sense of purpose. They have some pursuit. We have lives and families and jobs. We have hobbies and friends. We all matter, if only to ourselves and some others. It's a big world, and there's plenty of space for people of every stripe. But some lives are just feral, the very example of nasty, brutish, and short. And that is the truth of the lives of these serial killers and a lot of popular media that we just can't show in, in the media. Look, I know, that's hard to hear. And it kind of sucks to watch. And it isn't really all that great to talk about. But that's the point. It's not meant to be easy. And that's where I have to rewind back to our other original point. We not only need to know the realities of these sorts of crimes, but it also helps to see the real lives of the actual murderers themselves. Sure, not all serial killers are as overtly unpleasant as a guy like Fritz Honka. I'm sure John Wayne Gacy was more physically clean on a day-to-day -day basis than him. But the details of the life of a guy like John Wayne Gacy should quickly disabuse you of any attempts at glorification. You don't need to watch multiple fictionalized accounts of serial killers or need to watch multiple, uh, you know, documentaries on ID discovery about serial killers. You know, say someone like Richard Chase or Richard Ramirez to realize that they are not camera ready. 
And there's no way to try and make them less repugnant and still tell the truth. You know, seeing representations of guys like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer that shows them in anything other than stark, cold light is doing a disservice. It's a disservice to survivors, victims, and their communities, in my opinion. Most platforms, like Netflix, they have a bottom line to consider, and they're not going to spend money making something genuinely unpleasant and realistic. You're sparking my interest in this film. I'm looking forward to it now because I remember the first time I saw American Psycho. Yeah. Whether or not that film is 100% in his head, what is the common theme with serial killers? It's one of, if not my first mental checklist for most people that do bad things. Is this a power fantasy? And when you show someone who is not dressed well, who is not acting well, who is having to get drunk to make the final act happen, that's somebody who's just either in over their head or is wanting control of another human being. And how often is that the plot? How often is that the motivation? I want to be able to manipulate you and twist you in ways that are not normal, that are not well, and eventually kill people. That's what the plot usually is, or at least the bottom line. Somebody wants control of somebody else. And I'm hearing that's what this film is. You know, in, in a sense, um, you know, as I've stated before, I'm not a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So anything I'm saying, take that with a, a very large grain of salt. But one of the things I think about when I, I really get to thinking about serial killers, especially the really brutal ones, the real nasty ones. No, I mean, they're all nasty, but you know what I mean. The, the exceptionally messy ones. Um, when I think about them, the term that comes to mind is shallowness. Uh, I'm a big fan of industrial music, as I've said before. And one of my favorite uh, industrial titles of all time comes from Coil. It's the phrase, constant shallowness leads to evil. And I think about that a lot when I think about a guy like Bundy or Ramirez or Gacy. The thing that you get down to at the bottom is there's not a lot of meaning there, is it? There's not a lot of there's there's a great deal at the surface, but there's not much below the surface either. I think about this sometimes in terms of a sociological concept outlined by a guy named Robert Cialdini. Uh, Cialdini coined the phrase a click were reaction. And what he was referencing there, for those of you who uh, grew up in an era without analog media, the clicking of a play button on a tape player and the whirring the life of a reel of, of tape. So the click were reaction. He made an argument that uh, amongst animals like uh, ducklings, for instance, they imprint on their, their mother and, and immediately they don't have to have a long discussion about who their parents are. They just know when they come out of the egg. That's a click were reaction. Well, I kind of think that when you're talking about serial killers, a lot of them have this fantasy in their head or this one thing that they're constantly trying to fulfill that once the murder starts, whatever it is, that's that click where reaction going on. Now, I, again, I'm not a psychologist. I could be completely wrong about that. But I think there's something similar to that. It's one of the things that amazes me so much. You know, I don't doubt that a guy like John Wayne Gacy had to be incredibly successful in a business world to get where he did in his small little community. But we're not talking about some some super genius here. He's not this brilliant guy. But at the bottom of it all, 
when you stripped away his membership in the you know junior chamber of commerce, when you trip you know strip away his business ownerships, things like that, or the clown makeup, and the clown makeup. <laughs> when you strip all of that away, there's nothing but a sh- an extremely shallow man with sexual desires that were just outside the norm that he had to kill to get what he want, or conversely, that could only be satisfied by murder. And you know. Again, I, I'm speculating at best. But one thing I do know is that, you know, prolonged discussions of guys like Honka or Gacy or uh, Richard Chase, I feel like I need a shower after that, you know? Agreed. <laughs> you know, I've said previously that I'm not above reproach on this subject. Uh, I do enjoy some true crime media. I've watched probably so many docs about serial killers that I, I I I probably just can't count them anymore. But as time has gone on, I find myself having a hard time with it. Taking a critical look at anything you appreciate will lead you to some pretty interesting places most of the time. It made me appreciate horror more, for instance, but it's also made me aware that I can't just passively enjoy most media either. Not every piece of horror media is making some huge social statement. Uh, most certainly are just trying to terrify, disgust, or amuse, and I think that's okay. Uh, those of us who've watched movies like Hack O' Lantern or Night of the Demons, really most of the indie horror of like the 1980s, know that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But then I think we should consider what we're watching and what that media is saying. You know, Joe, you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about the types of media that we love. You know, what do you make of all of this? Am am I off the mark here with my uh, ideas about serial killers here? It's been said that those who do not remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Keep that in mind when you're watching a film or a dramatization about a serial killer. That is something that actually happened. I think the biggest problem I see with serial killer media is when we dramatize it to the point of making it entertaining. I don't think anything is entertaining about what happens to the victims of a serial killer. But I don't know how you can get the majority of people to pay attention to the information. That's the reason why shows like Unsolved Mysteries and Rescue 911 were popular for a time because they were tense situations that were being dramatized to get the audience invested. And I do think you can teach someone information by making it entertaining. One of the best professors I've ever had. I can name him. He's retired. (laughs) He once said, if you can laugh, you can learn. Does that mean I want you to make a very dark comedy film about H.H. Holmes? No. But if you did, I would watch it and probably enjoy it because there is someone out there that will buy into that film and that will spark their interest. That will spark the intensity or the that that will spark the muse for them that's how they're going to get invested and how they're going to read into it it's the same reason why dracula is a different film than the actual story of vlad the impaler 
you know, it, what you're describing uh, to me, the thing that it, it sparks for me is this thought that one of the best ways to get people to understand is to narrativize. Like, I can sit here and say, um, Richard Chase killed two families in brutal, like, basic snatch and grab attacks. Uh, he shot and stabbed his victims, and his primary goal was to get access to their internal organs because he had a schizophrenic delusion that he didn't have enough blood and had to drink blood to save his own life. Okay, that's horrible. No one wants to hear that. That's that's terrible. But if I can put it in a narrative form, if I can give you the story of a man's life, how he ended up where he ended up and how he died, you can, if nothing else, learn from it because there's a common thread. There's a common tone in their life story with yours. Is that fair? Is that good? I, man, I don't know. Maybe. I... I Again, there's that that risk of when you narrativize, you may add an unintentional sheen. I don't think anyone's going to look at the life of a guy like Dahmer or Fritz Honka and think, man, he's cool. At least I hope not anyway. But at the same time, you do run the risk of just turning it into entertainment. And so we find ourselves kind of at the outer edge of our commentary about angst and the Golden Glove. I don't have any immediate plans at this point to discuss true crime further, Though, I want to leave that door open to, you know, at least have that possibility. You know, it's a fertile ground, and I think we'll continue to serve up a lot of interesting points as time goes on. But I have to also stand by my points here as well. Most media is not capable of talking about true horrors without sanitizing it for mass consumption. And that defangs the whole endeavor. As such... We need this sort of media to actually tell the truth with just enough distance to where we can process it. And I'm happy to move on <laughs> to less gut-churning subjects than this, <laughs> which is a strange feeling that only happens within the horror genre, you know? So with that, my dear audience, what do you think? Am I completely off base here? Is horror uniquely capable of talking about real-life terror or is it possible to use other genres to do the same thing? Do you have a personal favorite fictional horror movie uh, that is based on real life? If you do want to talk about these subjects, and you should, drop us a line, thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com to start that conversation. You can also find us on Twitter, provided that Twitter hasn't uh, fallen into the ocean before this starts. Uh, <laughs> our Twitter handle at fright underscore lab underscore pod. We're eventually going to get some other social media stuff, maybe, but y you know how it is. Social media is hell. Uh, Joseph, would you kindly let our audience know where they can find your other work? One of my favorite topics is music and heavy music and metal and hard rock and doom and gloom and everything in between. If you're a fan of heavy music, you need to check out all the podcasts at DiscussMetal.com. We have been talking about bands and heavy metal topics for over six years. There is so much if you haven't done it already, I want you to subscribe to The Fright Lab on your podcast player of choice. If you found this episode on Apple Podcasts, if you found it on Google Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this show, I want you to find the place that lets you give it a thumbs up, that lets you give it a five-star review, that lets you leave comments and send emails. You heard Lucas say it, the Fright Lab Podcast at gmail.com or frightlabpodcast.com. And if you're a musician or someone that likes to create creepy sounding sounds, send us an email. We want to hear from you. We would love to play your scary sounds on the podcast. If you'd let us, of course, 
And we are more than happy to give you a shout out if you do. We are both big fans of indie media, we're podcasters after all. And as such, we are more than happy to share this space and use this as an antenna to broadcast to bigger audiences. So with that, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Shokum. Production and engineering is from Joseph Wren. Uh, please share the show with all of your friends, actually. As he stated, we are on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And as always, we appreciate you tuning in, and we will see you soon. There is a section in the script where I ask if you have masterpiece theater typed like harpsichord or something that we could throw in the background. You know I do. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> what was I thinking when I wrote this? That was the subtitle for the uh, the entire show. What was I thinking when I wrote this? <laughs> Boy, that was just shit. What was I writing? It looked good on paper the third time you read it. Yeah. <laughs>